Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles with you and turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 9. If you're visiting with us and don't have a Bible with you, that's no problem. There should be blue Bibles in the pew right in front of you. And if you grab one of those, you can find Genesis 6 on page 5. It's right near the very beginning. And we're just walking through Genesis. In fact, as we go through Genesis and we come to this passage this morning, as I prayed, we're coming to one of the best known and most well-loved stories in the Bible. Odds are, even if you're not that familiar with the Bible, you've heard of this story. It's the story that's inspired thousands of adorable murals on the walls of nurseries and preschools. The story that has cute toy boats and cuddly stuffed animals for kids to put in them. It's a story that's featured probably more than any other, if I had to guess, in children's Bible story books. It's the story of Noah and the ark. But if we stop to actually listen to the story and what's really going on here, some of us are in for a surprise. Because what you'll find is that the story is not very cute and cuddly at all. Instead of snuggly animals on some pleasure cruise with a smiling Noah and his big boat, the scenes we find in our Bible are actually terrifying. I mean, they're intense and overwhelming. If we saw this story on the news, most of us would kind of turn our eyes away in horror at what's depicted here. Now, while it's completely appropriate that we tone it down when it's in kids' Bibles so that we could try to help them understand it. The problem is that when we tone down the story too far and we strip it of its horror and heaviness, we also miss out on the sheer wonder of grace that we find here as well. See, the flood is a story of judgment. It's not meant to be cute and cuddly. But it's not only a story of judgment. It's a story of grace and rescue and hope. And unless we really hear and come to terms with the darkness of judgment here, we won't savor the light of grace that shines through this story. So we're going to look at the text a little differently this morning. If you are regular here, normally you know that I'll just read the whole thing and then we'll walk through it slowly bit by bit. But because it's so long, we're going to try it a little different this morning. First, I am going to read it all. Now, you say, well, that's a lot. It is. But why would I read it all? Well, simple, because it's God's word. And more than you need to hear my words, we need to hear his word. So we're going to read it, but as we'll read, I'm going to jump in along the way and kind of explain a few things, make a few observations. Then after we read it through like this, we're going to circle back, and I just want to look at the whole thing through two lenses. Two themes that dominate this text. We're going to look at the waves of God's judgment and an arc of God's grace. Okay, so in fact, I'm going to tell you the main idea right up front so you can be looking and listening for it as we go through. I'm showing you the cards right here. The main idea is that God rightly judges all wickedness, but also saves a remnant by his grace. God rightly judges all wickedness, but also saves a remnant by his grace. Now, before we jump in, we always got to ask the question, how did we get here? I mean, how did we end up in this situation where there's a flood covering the earth? 
Well, let's remember our context. We've been walking through Genesis. And so we see that in the beginning, God created a good world. It was good, and he intended this good world to be filled with his glory as his image bearers, you and me, spread out to fill the earth. In Genesis 3, though, Adam and Eve sin in disobedience to God, and everything gets upended. The whole earth is brought under a curse. So they're kicked out of the garden, and from there, over the next several chapters, we see this downward spiral of sin and wickedness spreading through the world. Last week, we saw that things had gotten so bad that it says up in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. That's how bad it was. So now, because our God is holy and good and just, he can't just sit idly by and watch sin and evil wreak havoc on the world he made. He must do something about it. And that's what our passage is about today. It asks the question and answers, what would God do about all the wickedness that fills the earth? What will he do? So let's work our way through this story together. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. It starts with this sentence. These are the generations of Noah. Now, just for those of you who've been tracking, notice we're starting a new section here. Remember, we've seen this phrase, these are the generations of, several times. These, These are markers in our Bible saying, oh, last section ended, new section has started. It divides Genesis up. So last week, we ended the section on the generations of Adam. That told us about what was life like in this old world before the flood. And it was not a pretty picture. But now in this section, we have the old creation being destroyed to make way for a new creation. We'll say more about that later. But let's keep going. Back to verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, now we're going to come back to Noah a little bit later, but just notice right now the way it describes Noah here. He's righteous, he's blameless, and he walks with God. We're going to unpack that later, but for now, notice how it sets up a contrast with the world he lived in. That's how Noah was. What was the world like? Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Pause there. Now, we should note that the word for violence here, we hear that and we probably just picture fights. Somebody's hitting another person. And it includes that, for sure. But the meaning of violence here in the text, it's it's a broader word. One commentator helpfully explained it as any unneighborly activity. Any unneighborly activity. So it can often include just brute force, but it doesn't have to. It can be any hurtful action or hurtful speech against another person. All that falls under this word violence. So the picture we've got here in verse 11 is 
a corrupted world filled with people whose hearts are corrupt toward God and are unloving toward their neighbors. It's the exact opposite of how Jesus told us we are supposed to live earlier. So what would God do about the world and its wickedness? Verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So already, we can see this is going to be a story of judgment against a corrupt world. But that's not all it is, because God has more to tell Noah. Verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. So my guess is most of you are a little rusty on how big your cubits are. So if you can Google that, do a conversion, but I'll just tell you. How big is this thing? That's what we want to know is how big is this boat? Well, the ark would have been about 450 feet long by 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Now, again, if you're like me, you're like, that means absolutely nothing to me. It's just a bunch of numbers. Let me break it down. It's about one and a half football fields long. It's a big boat. It's a little taller than a three-story building and wide enough to park a semi and still have a little bit of room. In today's world, if you can picture it, it'd be about the size of a small cargo ship. That's what we're talking about here. So it's, we have bigger boats now, but back then, this thing would have been just a phenomenal feat. But let's keep going. God says, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So just notice, this judgment is going to be total. Everything with breath. He's not leaving much out. So any exceptions to this, God? Anything that won't die? Verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, Noah, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. 
And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So notice here. While the whole world will be destroyed, God will save a remnant in the ark. Why? Well, we see in the text, because of the righteousness of one man, Noah. Let's keep going, verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Now pause. This is important right here. Here you've got Moses who wrote the book of Genesis. And he's wanting to make sure that we know, hey, this story that I'm telling you, this isn't a myth. This isn't some made-up story just meant to entertain or teach a lesson. He doesn't say this happened once upon a time. He gives us an exact date. In the 600th year, in the second month, on the 17th day, on that day, he says, he's making the point that this is a historical event that happened on a real date, in a real time, in a real place. Back to the text, verse 12. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, just hold on there, because my fear is that we're so used to this story. If you've heard it, you know, like 40 days, 40 nights. I got it, I got it. You forget how crazy this is. If it rains like two or three days in a row here, we're like, wow, what is going on? Like 40 days and 40 nights. Not just that it was overcast and intermittent sprinkles, 40 days of torrential downpour. Imagine this. Verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, they and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out 
every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now we come to chapter 8. And finally, in chapter 8, verse 1, things start to take a turn. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated and then the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Now, just, just stop there a second. Can you imagine how ready these people were to get off this boat? I mean, the closest thing we compare is try to think back a couple years ago to the very beginning of the pandemic, those first few days of lockdown where like people weren't leaving their homes, were just like going stir crazy after 48, 72 hours of like, I can't go anywhere. You're, you're with the people you love, but by the 72 hour mark, your love is being tested and you're just like, okay, maybe we need to invest in a bigger home. They spent one year, that's one year, in this boat with their family and a zoo full of animals. You tell me, would you be ready to get off this boat? Now they finally get out. Verse 15, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. All right, we made it. So that's the story of the flood. But we're meant to see and know something through this story. So now what I want to do with the rest of our time is go back and focus on the two main themes that we saw. The themes of judgment and grace. So first, let's look at the waves of judgment in this story. We need to see that the flood was God's response to something. The flood was not simply a fluke act of nature. Like sometimes we have crazy weather events where we're just like, wow, that's weird. This was not something like that, where just the conditions were just right. It was that, one, what do you call them, once a century flood. It wasn't like a once a millennium or something flood. This was a, an act of God's wrath against human wickedness. This was not just an, an outburst where he just had a bad day and said like, oh, I'm just, I'm feeling kind of ornery today. I think I'm going to flood the world. No, there's something provoked this in God. We see here that the flood was the fault of mankind and our sin. We've been seeing this growing evil in the earth. Like I said, think back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God looked out at the things he had made. And seven times we read that God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw it was very good. Seven times. But now in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, God looks out at the world that he's made and what he sees is not good. Instead, God saw that the earth was corrupt. Three times it uses that word, corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. It wants us to see that it was corrupt and filled with violence. The world that was meant to be filled with the glory of God was instead filled with violence and evil. Sin had corrupted and contaminated everything. And that is why God resolves to destroy humanity. That's the reason the flood happens. You can't understand why the flood happened unless you read the context and you see just how bad things were. Sin is what brought about the flood. We saw last week that God's heart is grieved over the rampant wickedness he sees. He cannot just let it slide. You don't want a God that just lets wickedness slide. Because he's a just judge and a good God, he won't allow evil to go unchecked. He must righteously judge all wickedness. And that's what the flood is. The flood is God's just wrath poured out on guilty sinners. Now I say it's just because every single person that perished in the flood was guilty. And we need to remember this. No innocent people perished. There was no collateral damage in God's war against sin. Every person that was swept away was an enemy combatant whose heart was in active rebellion against the maker. 
And God's judgment is always like this, friends. He never sweeps away the innocent. As Abraham said to God in Genesis 18, he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And that's what the flood is. It's the just judgment of God against sin. What we also see in the flood is that God's wrath is not just some explosive eruption of anger when God is provoked. It's not like you just can just say the wrong thing or push the right button and he's just going to fly off the handle. That is not God's wrath. In fact, what we see is that God's wrath is actually very patient. Think of how many sinful generations he held off from bringing judgment. That's part of why we have these genealogies leading up. So we can see, yes, sin is there. Yep, wickedness is there. But God waits and waits and waits and waits. Think about even in our story. Consider how long he waited as Noah built the ark. God's wrath in the flood was no knee-jerk reaction. It was a patient, purposeful pouring out of a perfectly just punishment. And this judgment was one of utter destruction. Look at how pervasive this judgment is. 6.17, I will destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. 7.4, every living thing that I have made I will blot out. Like it's over and over telling us Nothing escapes this judgment. There's nowhere they can hide. There's no cave they can go into. No far corner of the globe that's untouched. Everything. And this judgment, this pervasive but just judgment, it takes the world completely by surprise. They were just going about their business. Like other than Noah and his family, people weren't preparing for this. They were just living their normal lives, going to work, having a barbecue, doing whatever it is they did back then. And they're just thinking, all this God stuff? Man, I ain't got time for that. I got, I, got a, I got bills to pay. I got family to feed. I don't have time to think about God and warnings about a coming judgment. That's, that's just something that people made up. Now, why does all this matter? Is it just fascinating to know what was going on then? No. Because the judgment of the flood was a foreshadowing of a greater judgment against sin yet to come. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 24. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Friends, Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And when he comes, people will be going about their normal lives. There will be no countdown clock. There will be no two-minute warning for you to get right with God saying, oh, I've had the fun, now I'm going to get serious because he's coming. That won't be. 
People will be unaware until the flood of judgment comes and sweeps them away. We know more than that, not just people will ignore it, people will mock at that idea. They'll laugh and be like, really? You believe all that Jesus is coming back stuff? How do we know? Because the New Testament promises it. It says in 2 Peter 3, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The New Testament is not surprised that people laugh and mock and ignore and scorn the idea that we worship a king who's in the heavens and will come back and will judge the world. They're like, yeah, right. How many, how many years has it been? It's been a while. I don't see Jesus. It says that's going to happen. So the fact that it's happening shouldn't discourage you, should encourage you. It's like, yes, that's exactly what God said would happen. He's saying people are going to ignore the warning that the flood is meant to be. The flood is meant not just for that generation, it's for you and me to look back on and say, oh, that's a little taste of the judgment that's coming. Like, that's, that pales in comparison, but I have an idea now. Just like God judged sin then, he'll judge sin again. And this matters because when the judgment comes, friends, we all, all stand guilty of sin. If you're here and you've never heard that, I just got to tell you, you're, you're part of a big club called humanity. We are all sinners. We've all rebelled against God and we've all not loved our neighbor. And when Jesus comes, it says the wicked will not stand in the judgment. No one will escape this judgment. The Bible says no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And remember, it's not as though God has a short fuse. You're saying, whoa, God, I just, I slipped up once. No, 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 he's waited and he's waited. As Peter says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friends, we need to hear this, that the fact that the Lord has not come back yet to judge isn't due to his slowness to keep his promise. He hasn't lost sight of the fact that he said, oh, I told them I'd be coming back, right? That is not it. The fact that the Lord hasn't come back is due exclusively to his patience. His just and pervasive judgment against sin is coming. And it hasn't come yet only because he's patient. So friends, if you are in Christ, aren't you glad he waited? Have you ever thought of that? What if he'd come back? Aren't you glad he waited? And if you're here and you're not in Christ, don't wait. Do not presume upon the riches of his kindness and his patience toward you. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. 
to turn away from your sin, to heed the warning of the flood and say, I don't want that. I deserve that, but I don't want it. God, I'm turning away from the sin and the wickedness and the evil. I'm going to stop ignoring you and instead I'm going to trust you. Because there is a judgment coming and that is the judgment we see in the flood. But in the midst of God's horrific judgment against sin, guess what else we see? We also see his stunning and incomprehensible grace. Though the world was filled with evil and God could have justly wiped out every single one, he chose to show favor. Remember last week we said show grace. It's the same word. He chose to show grace to Noah. What was different about this Noah fella? Well, we saw it up in chapter 6, verse 9. It said, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So in a world filled with unneighborly violence and wickedness toward God, Noah was righteous. He, he was loving God and he was loving his neighbor. He didn't war with God, he walked with God. And did you notice how Noah responded to God's instructions all throughout the story? If you just scan your eyes, look at chapter 6, verse 22, 7, 5, 7, 9, 7, 16. What are we told repeatedly? Noah did as God commanded him. Over and over, it wants us to see that whatever God told him to do, Noah obeyed. He did it. There's no, there's actually no dialogue. Did you notice that? There's no conversation. Noah hasn't spoken. It just, God says, do this, and Noah says, he goes and does it. Even when he didn't understand. We'd be naive to think that Noah's like, oh, I see what's going on here. I got it all figured. Okay, God, yep, same page, you and me. You want me to build a what? Where? How big? Like, this didn't make sense to Noah either. We got to understand that. But he didn't question, he obeyed. And he obeyed even though he's doing it while surely being mocked. People think this dude's crazy. They don't see him as a godly, righteous, upstanding citizen. They see him as the nut job down the street. He does it because God told him to. But at that point, we got to stop and ask, okay, wait, so is that the main point? Is that the main point of the flood story? Do what God commands and you'll be saved. Did Noah earn his ticket on the ark through his obedience? Hopefully you know the answers. No, of course not. Remember, we already saw before all this that Noah found grace in God's eyes. That means he received something he did not deserve. But then what motivated him to obey God the way he did? Well, once again, we need to look to the New Testament to help us understand the old. In Hebrews 11, we read this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What we see is that behind and in and underneath all Noah's obedience was faith. His obedience was an obedience of faith. His righteousness, it says, was a righteousness that comes by faith. 
So when God warned him of the judgment to come and told him the ark was the only way he could be saved, he did what God said and he got in the ark. He trusted God's warning of judgment and he trusted God's promise of rescue. And because of this one man's obedience, God saves a remnant from judgment. By grace, some were rescued from God's wrath against sin and it all happens through this one man's righteous obedience. So when Noah and his family get into the ark of God's grace, notice it says they are sealed in by God himself. Don't miss that detail. Noah didn't shut the door. The Lord shut him in. They're sealed in by God himself so that no matter how bad that storm gets outside, they are safe inside his grace. They sail through the judgment into a new age. And once the storm of judgment has passed, they emerge into a new world. And this remnant that have escaped God's wrath and have been saved by his grace do what? They respond in grateful worship. They build an altar to the Lord and he promises to never destroy mankind again. They delight in God's saving grace and they rejoice in his promises to spare them from a future judgment. Now I hope, I hope for some of you at least, you're, you're bursting at the seams and you're saying, wait, 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 I, I know this story. I know this story because it's the gospel story. We too are part of a world corrupted by wickedness and the wickedness isn't just out there. It's in here. We're all guilty of sin against God and therefore deserving of his judgment. Don't miss deserving. And that judgment, he says, is coming. But God's grace has provided us an ark, a way to be safe from the coming waves of judgment. And friends, Jesus is the ark. God has warned us of what our sins deserve and he's told us the only way to be saved from the coming wrath is run into Christ. Run into him for rescue and refuge because through that one man's obedience, an ark of grace is provided to sinners. He did the work by dying in our place for our sins and bearing the wrath of God for us. He faced the floodwaters of death, was buried under them, and but guess what? The tomb is empty because he came back up out of them. And now we can enter into him by faith. That's how we get in this. That's how you get in the ark of Jesus is by faith. We repent of our sin and trust that Jesus is the rescue I need. And when we enter into Christ, guess what? God seals us with his spirit so that while the storms of doubt and unbelief may howl outside, we are safe inside his grace. And in him, we will safely sail through the judgment into a new world. And how do we respond to all that? In grateful worship to the one who saved us by his blood. That's what we're doing today. Here's what's amazing. Do you know what's at the very heart of this flood story? This is beautiful. If you want to go ahead and put up that chart. This story is masterfully crafted to make what's called a chiasm. Fancy word. Remember, we talked about it before. A chiasm it just means there's a mirror image of things. Top and bottom reflect each other as you work your way in. Check this out. Look at how the story is balanced on both sides to reflect each other. 
So at the beginning, you've got God resolving to destroy the corrupt race. At the bottom, God resolves not to destroy man. Then you've got Noah building an ark, Noah building an altar. God commands the remnant to enter the ark. God commands the remnant to leave the ark. Flood comes, flood dries. Flood prevails 150 days and it covers the mountains. Flood recedes 150 days and the mountains are visible. But the thing about chiasms, that's all interesting and cute. Really, they're designed for one purpose and one purpose only. To emphasize what's at the middle. They're doing this big, long thing so that I'm drawing your attention to one idea. And I want to impress it upon you. So what is the heartbeat of this passage? But God remembered Noah. That's the story of the flood. That's what he says. You want to know what's at the heart of the flood? It's God remembered Noah. That's the turning point of everything. Now, what does that mean? Had, had God forgotten him? Had, he, had Noah slipped his mind? No, of course not. When the Bible talks about God remembering someone, it means he moves toward them in love because of a commitment he's made to them. He, he, you see it all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. He remembers Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob. When his people groan in slavery in Egypt, guess what God does? God remembers them and sends a deliverer. He's, it means when he remembers, he's faithfully keeping his promises. So what God's doing here in 8.1 is God's remembering and keeping his promise to Noah in the ark to rescue him from judgment. Noah, I told you I would get you through this, and I will get you through this. And friends, if you are in Christ, when the final judgment comes and his wrath is poured out against sin, God will remember you. That's his promise, is I will remember you. He'll keep every promise he's ever made to deliver you and keep you safe from destruction. He'll bring you through the judgment of the world to the new creation. Which brings us to one last thing to note about the flood. What happens in the flood is nothing less, and we got to see this, it's nothing less than the de-creation of the world. That's what God's doing here. Think back to Genesis 1. Do you remember what we found in Genesis 1-2? Second verse of the Bible. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The picture is that the earth was empty and formless as the waters of chaos covered everything. Sounds a lot like what happened in the flood. And then the dry ground that separated the waters slowly was swallowed up by the floods. And every living thing on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, was blotted out. In other words, in his judgment against sin, God has now uncreated the world. He hit rewind and just took it all back, saying, this is too far gone, too screwed up. Back to Genesis 1-2. But that's not all he did. Because once he's decreated the world, he then recreates. Because when God remembers Noah in 8-1, think about what happens from that point forward. From the waters of chaos in 8-2, God makes a wind blow over the earth. Now, if you remember, wind is the same word in Hebrew as spirit. So in 1-2, you've got a spirit hovering over the waters. Here, you've got God causing a wind to blow over the earth. From there, dry ground appears. 
Then plants appear when the dove brings back an olive branch. Then when they leave the ark, we see birds and animals and every creeping thing, which did you catch in the reading? We were carefully told, each according to its kind, each according to its kind, each according, just like Genesis 1. And then we see man. Now, why does all that matter? Is that just, again, interesting details? No, it matters because it's trying to tell us this is a new creation. God has judged evil and wickedness and started a new order with the righteous remnant saved by grace. And after he destroys the corrupted creation, he restores it for his people to live in and enjoy. Friends, this is what awaits us. The day of God is coming and he will once again dissolve this world in judgment. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we get there only in the ark of Christ. He is the ark of grace God provides to see us safely through the waves of judgment.